0: MIDI clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Josh Kieser, on August 2nd, which would have been Michelle Lawless's 21st birthday, was sentenced to 60 years on guilty verdicts of second-degree murder and armed criminal action. He was left to deal with the heavy consequences of this injustice, sentenced to one of the most violent prisons in the nation as a kid with not a lot of weight on his bones. Meanwhile, Mark Abbott, the state's key witness, his twin brother Matt, and their buddy Kevin Williams, along with a handful of hardcore meth dealers in southeast Missouri, were not just selling drugs. They were enriching themselves on the drug trade in southeast Missouri. This was going on during the investigation of Josh Kieser. Some documents I have show the conspiracy began the summer before, when one defendant, in his guilty plea, specifically stated that, quote, between the dates of July 1993 and June 1995, unquote, he conspired with Kevin Wayne Williams and a California meth dealer to distribute meth. Williams and both Abbott's, but more so Matt than Mark, were known to drive to Barstow, California to acquire pounds of meth at a time. The Abbott's and Kevin Williams were among a band of vicious, gun-toting, bar-fighting country boys who were transporting drugs either in their own vehicles or as truck drivers for trucking companies. In fact, I'm told by a source once very close to Kevin Williams that he quit his job at Feral Mobile Home Sales to pursue the drug trade full-time. He left that job a few months before Michelle's murder. I tried to pinpoint the timeline as to when Williams and the Abbotts became involved with the meth trade. Mark Abbott testified he didn't get involved in meth until well after the murder, but I have several sources who tell me that that's not true. But the meth trade, like all enterprises, evolve over time. Demand changes, supply changes, efficiencies emerge. Buying moderate quantities from a local dealer might seem like good money until you do the math and figure out it would be well worth your time and effort to cut out the middleman and get larger quantities directly from the source. So this is the point in the story where things get a little bit more complicated. We're going to be splitting off into different storylines. We have Michelle's murder. That's been the focus and we'll continue to examine evidence that has come out about who actually committed that crime. We have a drug investigation in which current suspects, of Michelle's murder were heavily involved. And then we have the long, slow process of undoing Josh Kieser's conviction. Through all of these threads, there is an undercurrent of corruption, a picture that began to emerge as investigators turned a blind eye toward Mark Abbott despite all his inconsistencies, and instead found ways to push Josh's conviction through a disturbing investigation. This is the point in the story where the word lawless takes on more meaning than the last name of our murder victim. The story that's told from this point is told via the files of a fraud case, a sexual harassment case, a major methamphetamine investigation, and an exoneration case. Josh Kieser was convicted on June 17, 1994. We're going to jump ahead in the timeline now to October 29, 1994. It just so happens that on that date, coincidentally, Glenn Farrell, the owner of of Feral mobile homes and Kevin Williams' former boss was under federal investigation for fraud charges. He was in trouble. He was facing prison time. He had been charging his mobile home sales customers a sales tax that did not exist. The state would claim that Feral, not closely related to the sheriff, had fraudulently collected more than $100,000 from his customers. He had had his employees do two separate books in attempts to conceal his fraud from auditors. Others who knew people close to Glenn Farrell told me the fraud was much more profitable than what the state had proven. Kevin Williams, or at least his wife at the time, Terry, was unaware that Kevin's friend was under this investigation by the feds. Terry Williams knew far too little to know exactly what to do when her husband called and left the message on the answer machine. She lived a life gripped by fear. Her primary goal was to stay out of the way of her violent husband and whatever illegal activities he'd become involved with. But on that night... In late October of 1994, that trouble put Terry in the middle of her husband's lawlessness. Hours earlier, a call came into the Cape Girardeau Police Department from Drury Lodge, a hotel near the interstate. The caller, a man from out of state, had told the hotel lobby manager that there appeared to be suspicious activity near his room. The drug ring did all kinds of drug deals and partying in hotel rooms. On that night, Williams was with his girlfriend. It was 8.15 p.m. when the informant called about the activity in rooms 247 and 255. The witness gave the descriptions of a couple of small black cars and a bright green or aqua color pickup truck. An officer named Bill Bonert would respond to the call. You'll be getting to know Bonert more as we make it through this story, but back then he was merely a traffic officer. As Bonert and the informant were standing in the front lobby, they observed the green truck leave the parking lot. He pulled them over. He found drugs on both Williams and his girlfriend, and there was a weapon with a loaded magazine covered with a towel. They found marijuana, Valium, methamphetamine, and rolling papers, but not large quantities. They were small amounts. Boner and another officer also found a shaving kit and a cell phone, and later they found 200 rounds of 45 caliber ammunition which would fit in the gun found in the truck. Williams and his girlfriend were placed under arrest and taken to the Cape Girardeau City Jail. Officer Rick Price spoke with both subjects, but neither would say where they got their methamphetamine. Williams was afforded a phone call and he placed it to his wife. She didn't answer, but he left a cryptid message instructing his wife to look under the underpinning of their trailer home. Terry would get the message and found a plastic container with a money bag. It contained $22,060. Terry's mind raced. She believed her job was to get the money away from the trailer into a safe place. She thought Kevin's good friend, Glenn Farrell, his former boss, might know what to do. So she went to him with that bag of money. Glenn Farrell told her he didn't want anything to do with that money, and he sent Terry on her way. Then Glenn made a phone call. The call went to his uncle, a prosecutor, who then contacted a drug enforcement officer named Alan Faust. At 8.30 the following morning, Faust and another narcotics officer went to Williams' house. Terry met them as they approached. Faust told her he had information that she had retrieved a substantial amount of money at Kevin's request. Faust requested her to hand over the money, and they took the money back to the jail and then questioned Kevin Williams about it. Had Williams not panicked and involved his wife, he would have faced a possession charge and a weapon charge, and faced a smaller jail sentence. Having possession of this money, the police now knew that they were looking at a major drug dealer. $20,000 in cash is no small thing. And Kevin Williams began to sing. He said he'd been selling for about seven months at that point, which would have been about March of 1994. He gave up the name of his Barstow connection and he gave up the names Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott, and Gary Childers. A month later, Glenn Farrell would receive his sentence. The trial had been moved to the federal court in Illinois because Farrell's relative was a federal prosecutor in Cape Girardeau. The judge overseeing the case addressed Glenn Farrell and his lawyer, whose last name was Margulis. The judge said, quote, In addition to the pre-sentence report, I'd like the record to reflect some additional information that was forwarded me by Mr. Magulis. I have received a number of letters on your behalf, Mr. Farrell, and I have read each of them and have considered them along with the pre-sentence report in connection with this matter. In particular, I'd like the record to reflect that there have been letters sent from Sheriff Bill Farrell, Reverend Dale Huff, Marvin Lawless, Connie Barnett, and the Mayor of Benton, Joe Stuckey, Clarence Dyer, Matt Carr, Gene Reynolds, Michael Popes, He went on to list 11 more names after that. Many of these people, including Marvin Lawless, went to Unity Baptist Church, but Sheriff Bill Farrell was not one of those people. If you're a homeless kid from Kankakee, you can't get the sheriff to interview your alibis or even give polygraphs to people whose stories have changed. If you're a troublemaker and the son of a former mafia gangster, you escape the polygraph and the blood draw. But if you're the owner of a trailer home sales business and have defrauded people out of at least $105,000 by cooking two sets of books, well, if you're Glenn Farrell, you get a letter of endorsement from the head law enforcement officer in the county. Glenn Farrell was sentenced to 10 months in a minimum security prison and placed on supervised release for a term of two years. He was ordered to pay a fine of $10,000 and pay $105,000 in restitution. In 2017, Glenn Farrell was pardoned by Barack Obama. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
2: Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or printed. Why was that not done? I don't know. I I don't know that they weren't. I I don't know. I don't know whether he said... I thought maybe he had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that, but I wasn't really clear on what he was saying, whether it was just a friend and they called the police or if the person was some form of a law officer.
3: I don't care if it's on the record or not, and I can't prove it, but Bill was kind of a kingpin uh, in Scott County for a lot of illegal activities going on.
4: Then when they brought me back to the county jail, the sheriff there in St. Genevieve County, he once tried to question me about the murder on his own. I was working out on the weights there. This is months before the trial, and he came out and he tried to play the good cop with me. Talk to me, Josh. Tell me what really happened. I didn't do it, man. That's what really happened. He didn't want to hear it. He dismissed me. Walked away. Never really had anything for me. During the trial, he paid attention. He attended the trial. That was the biggest case in St. Genevieve at that time widely publicized case in southeast Missouri at that time and he met me at the jail when they brought me back and I'm standing there 19 year old kid 160, 165 pounds with my head down shackles on my ankles chained the shackles on my wrists, cuffs. And he stood in front of me and he said, look up. Something like, look at me, boy. And, uh, I did. And he knew, he he communicated, he knew I was innocent. He had listened to the evidence, and he knew I was innocent. The jailers had listened to the evidence. They knew I was innocent, and they told me to keep my head up, to never give up. And they walked me back to the the area that I was staying in at that point. They had me staying with the work release people at that point because I was a well-behaved inmate. And I didn't get out for work, at least clearly I stayed locked up in there, but on the way back there, they asked me out of concern, you're not going to kill yourself, are you? And I said, without hesitation, no, that's not in me.
1: probably remember where you were the first night that Josh Kieser spent in prison. About an hour after Josh learned his dubious fate, Los Angeles County District Attorney Gil Garcetti held a news conference filing murder charges against O.J. Simpson. The evening of Josh's conviction, an estimated 95 million people watched the slow-motion police chase of the famous white Bronco. The national news outlets were obsessed with the story that would lead to the trial of the century. It's a wonder that a local story, taking up two columns in the corner of the front page in the Scott County Signal newspaper, a weekly sister newspaper of the Southeast Missourian, caught Lacey Warren's attention. Lacey was a teenager, a few years younger than Michelle, and she remembered the Halloween party at her friend Don Worley's place. She had read the story, and then she went to see her friend Dawn. Lacey plopped the newspaper in front of Dawn and told her to read it. She didn't say anything. She just said she wanted to get Dawn's reaction. It was June 20th, three days after the conviction. The article was sent to the press before the verdict, as the headline only read that, quote, Keeser murder trial underway, unquote. Dawn read the article. "'This is a downright lie,' Dawn Worley said. "'Either that, or Chantel Crider was grossly mistaken. "'Dawn knew every boy at her party. "'The only people she didn't know were the two friends Michelle brought to the party, "'and that was Chantel and Alicia. "'And there were a couple more girls who came with their boyfriends. "'Dawn had known Todd Mayberry for many years. "'She remembered Todd and Michelle kissing at the party, "'which took everyone by surprise,' she said. Dawn had seen Josh Kieser's photo in the newspaper and on the television news. Josh Keizer was not at her party. There's no question about it. Furthermore, Dawn noted, she would have remembered a big incident of a dramatic exit from the party with a boy she didn't know hanging onto the car as they left. It would have happened right in front of where they were hanging out. Michelle was one of just a couple of cars on that side of the house that night. The next day, on June 21st, Dawn and Lacey both made statements numbered them, and signed them for Al Lowe's and David Rosner. Don even wrote a list of names of every boy she remembered at the party. She said, quote, I know that Kreider did not see Josh Keiser at my party, and I would not want Josh Kieser or anyone to be blamed for something that they didn't do. Until I saw the newspaper article about Chantel Kreider testifying, I did not think any knowledge that I had concerning my Halloween party was important. The statement was notarized. Josh's case was immediately appealed. That appeal was denied. On August 4th, 1994, Josh Keiser's mother, Joan Keezer wrote the following letter to the editor to the Southeast Missourian newspaper. To whom it may concern, my name is Joan Keezer my only child Joshua C. Kieser, 19, was recently convicted of second-degree murder and armed criminal action. He's been sentenced to 60 years in prison. But I am absolutely positive that my son is innocent. Aside from the fact that Joshua is a fair and kind young man who once had me stop the car so he could move a turtle to safety, we have concrete evidence proving that he was over 300 miles from Scott County. At the time of this crime, he was in no way connected to or even acquainted with the victim. I won't waste your time trying to convince you that Josh is a saintly Sunday school teacher because he's not. He's just a normal teenager, or at least he was. The important issue here is the truth. Who killed Angela M. Lawless? Physical evidence as well as alibi testimony prove that it certainly was not Josh Keezer. Things were admitted into court which should never have been allowed. Many things were misconstrued seemingly with intent. Our attorneys listed 60 points of error showing that Joshua did not receive a fair trial. The legal system has failed to honor a code of ethics which demands that justice be sought. A grave injustice has been served to Joshua Kieser and our family, as well as to the Lawless family and the citizens of the state of Missouri. The officials have not solved anything, they have merely closed a case. In doing so, they have not only devastated a young man's life, they have also allowed a real killer to go free. It is my belief that the people of Scott County, like all people, deserve the protection promised them by elected officials. I believe they have a right to know that an innocent person has been convicted so that the actual assailant may be sought. They are entitled to safety from harm, at least from this particular violent individual. Of course, Angela Lawless and her family are the ultimate victims of this tragedy. I contend that this unjust prosecution and conviction have created many additional victims, beginning with Joshua Keezer, a young man who has wrongly been deprived of his normal life. Others include my parents, who are forced to erode their life savings to finance Josh's defense, myself for obvious reasons, and the people of Scott County in the state of Missouri.
3: On a particular day <clears throat> after the the court proceedings after Josh Kiesler had been convicted of the crime, Abbott came to a cabin that I was at that belonged to another friend of mine, Sammy Johnson, in commerce.
1: Just to refresh your memory, this is Ron Burton. You've heard from him in several episodes. Back in episode one, I told you that he witnessed something very important in this case, and now we're finally getting to that. This happened sometime in the early fall of 1994.
3: And he showed up there with another guy that I did not know. But I was supposed to meet Sammy there. Come to find out Sammy was already down on the lake fishing and I didn't know that. So I stayed at the cabin, blah, blah, blah. Abbott showed up with his buddy and came in the cabin and we got to talking. Of course, I knew that Abbott had testified in court over... What, whatever he came up with as to how he was involved in it. And so I asked him uh, questions about it and, and like in the court proceedings, they, when I was on the witness stand, they asked me whether Abbott had been, whether I could tell whether he was on drugs or whether he had been drinking and I said no, I, I couldn't tell that. But he answered when we got talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it Abbott just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit and he said yeah they got they got the wrong guy for that he said I took care of that bitch and I'll never forget what he said and I just kind of sat back like this and thought what the heck is he talking about you know so that's when I went to Bill Farrell afterwards and sat in his office, just him and I, and he more or less leaned back in his chair with his, with his hands crossed like I am now, and I told him exactly what went on, what I was told, and he just blatantly told me. He said, no, he said, uh, we've got the right guy. He said, case closed as far as I'm concerned. So I said, well, I, said, I guess I just don't have anything else to say then, so I, I walked out.
1: It was either the day of the conviction or the day after. My source doesn't really remember quite for sure. She just remembers watching the news and finding out that Josh Kieser had been convicted of a murder of a college girl in Scott County. My source, who requested anonymity, had previously known Josh through a family connection. Her grandmother knew Josh's mother. At the time of the trial in June of 1994, my source was messing around with Matt Abbott. The source said Matt was generally not high when they were together. Mark, on the other hand, was high a lot more often. A source said Matt was at her apartment while the news was on, and he had come down the stairs at about the time the newscaster was reporting the Keiser verdict. He didn't do it. I used to babysit him. Upon hearing those words, Matt Abbott stopped talking to her, she said. His attitude dramatically changed. My source didn't know about any potential involvement regarding the Abbott twins or Kevin Williams or anyone else at the time. She wouldn't put that together until much later. But she believes now her statement sparked fear and anger in those responsible for Michelle's murder. My source had been telling friends of hers she didn't think Josh committed the murder. It wasn't his personality to do something like that, she told me. Her mom was a bartender at the VFW. She's since passed away, but she had a lot of connections. She collected a lot of drinking friends and stories while pouring all the drinks. My source learned that the Abbott twins might have been involved in Michelle's murder from her mother. Several months later, on the final day of 1994, my source went to the Purple Crackle with her friend to celebrate New Year's Eve. She had been drinking and had in mind to go home with Matt to settle a score with a rival girlfriend. And so that night she thought she was leaving the Purple Crackle with Matt She soon realized, however, it wasn't Matt on her arm escorting her from the bar. Mark was taking her to his truck, where another man was waiting for them. My source believes it was Kevin Williams, but she isn't certain on that point because she didn't know him. What she is certain about, though, is that the men pushed her into the truck and took her for a drive. They drove south about 15 miles to the Benton exit where they turned on the exit ramp, driving slowly over the overpass toward the Federal Mobile Home sales lot. Do you know where we are? One of them asked. She told them she didn't, but of course she knew. She was terrified. You talk too much, one of them said. A source said they told her to stop talking about Josh Kieser being innocent, and if she didn't keep her mouth shut, she would end up just like Michelle. She doesn't remember the ride home. The speed bump files that I've obtained from the Missouri Highway Patrol go into great depth of the investigation. I'm going to read you portions from some of these files. Childers told Williams that he was going to start driving his own car to California to obtain methamphetamine. Williams said that he distributed portions of the one pound of methamphetamine to Fowler and to Riley and to Gary Joe Mason. Riley and Mason, he said, worked as partners in distributing the drugs. Williams said other portions of the methamphetamine went to Todd Winders of Paducah, Kentucky, whom Williams met through Childers, and some went to John Robert Bobby Vozar, an employee of Williams. Williams said that approximately two to three weeks later, he gave Childers $18,000 to $20,000 for two pounds of methamphetamine, which Childers expected to pick up on an upcoming trip to California. Williams said that Childers was gone approximately three and one-half days and upon returning to Missouri, came to Williams' shop where he gave the drugs to Williams. Williams said that the methamphetamine weighed slightly more than one and three-quarters pounds and that he buried the bulk of it in five-gallon buckets near his house. Williams said that he distributed portions of the methamphetamine to Winders, Fowler, Mason, Vozar, and Jimmy Howell of Scott City, Missouri. Williams said that all of these subjects would receive portions of the methamphetamine on the front and would then return repeatedly for more until all the methamphetamine had been distributed. Williams said that Howell distributed some of the methamphetamine that he received from Lisa, last name unknown, in Cape Girardeau. Williams said that the one and three quarters pounds of methamphetamine was all distributed within three to four days after it was received. Rick Walter, who was just a reserve deputy at the time of Michelle Lawless's murder, went on to be a full-time deputy. In that role, he didn't like some of the things he was seeing.
5: I believe it was still in the city limits of Minor, but North North Miner. Um, and I had went to I'd went to the academy with a, a guy that had graduated with. He was he, at that time he was with the DEA, and uh, so the DEA was involved, um, drug task force. Uh, minor city, and I was the only one from the county that was there. And we were we were to serve the search warrant and this at this guy's. Uh, it was actually the, the, where we served the search warrant was behind his residence, behind the residence, and was a a uh, like a shop that had a small office in it. And I think he might have worked on cars, as far as like auto body or you know, it wasn't a a real big business, but he just kind of, uh, there wasn't any advertisement uh, on the building. It was just, I think he just done that as a hobby, maybe, I don't know. Um, But we had to uh, wait until we got the go-ahead from the sheriff. Uh, We were ordered that nobody was to be in uniform except me, because uh, I was to read the search warrant to this person, and, um, uh, no patrol cars because he did not want to embarrass anybody. He didn't want to embarrass this guy. So there was no patrol cars. Everybody had to have uh, under uh, plane cars or uh, their own vehicles. Um, so we were waiting at minor police department. I decided just to walk out the front of the PD to get kind of get away from everybody else. And um, while I was standing outside in front of the police department, he drove, the sheriff drove by. And he waved to me, I waved to him, and he drove, of course, he, his residence was just north of where we were going to serve the search warrant, and he waved at us, at, waved at me. And a little bit later, he gave us he gave the call, he said, go ahead and serve the search warrant. Um, I rode with the, the, the DEA agent, the one that I had went to the academy with, and on the way, um, I asked him, I said, what do you think we're really going to find here now? Because I told him what had happened, uh, that that the sheriff had just drove by, and we were waiting on his phone call. Which there was nothing that I could prove or anybody else, but he drove right by this guy's residence. And I found out later that they were acquaintances. Um, we got there, we we ran up to the went up to the door. Uh, you could see through the uh, glass through in the door uh, that. Uh, this guy was inside and he was buffing. It looked like he was buffing a fender on, on maybe a set of sawhorses. And when we all came in, he looks up. I don't think he even really stopped buffing. He just looked up and he said, "Hey guys, what's going on? Come on in." He wasn't surprised. He wasn't shocked. You got all these, you got all these law enforcement coming in your shop, and it was like we were welcome there. He was wasn't surprised that we were there. Uh, like he was expecting us. He, uh, I, I said, I need to, I've got this, I advised him we had a search warrant. And he said, yeah, not a problem. And I, he took us over to the little office area. He said, now come in here, look in here, open the doors for us. And he said, you may want to look behind here. And he's pointing out places and helping us. And I read the search warrant to him and I, I gave him a ride back to Minor PD. Um, we did not find anything. He, was, he wasn't he was worried about it at, the, at all. Um, so... You know, a lot of us there that night, we had our own conclusions of what had happened. Mm -hmm. Again, couldn't prove anything, but um, just the way everything went down and set up, it seemed seemed pretty odd. Yeah.
1: All righty. All right, before we get started, can you just kind of introduce yourself, tell us who you are?
6: Uh, My name is William Bonert, I'm a retired police officer for the city of Cape Girada. I worked there, was also assigned to the uh, SEMO Drug Task Force and DEA Task Force in Cape Girada area.
1: So when were you on the drug task force?
6: I was back on, I think, 2003. I worked in narcotics, let me say, I worked in narcotics from 96 to 2000 became a regular detective in 2000, then at uh, 2003 to 2008, I was back in the SEMO Drug Task Force again.
1: Okay, so you had a lot of experience in narcotics before you moved on to the, the drug task force? Yes. Okay. All right, so now can we talk about just kind of your experience on the ta- on the task force? Um, when you were on the, the task force, can you share with, with me what that was like? I know at one point you told me that um, you've kind of felt uncomfortable down there and that um, there's, there's certain rules seem to apply down there that didn't apply elsewhere. Can you talk about that? Well,
6: I I know that what, while Bill Farrell was still in as the sheriff down there, I just did not feel like going down there and working cases because uh, I know that one time we had a a search warrant myself and another officer and we went down to the uh, UPS depot down in uh, Scott County and we served that search warrant <clears throat> and um, we got a phone call a little bit later on from Sheriff Bill Farrell and he said he's the sheriff there and you got a search warrant you bring it to me and I'll serve it <laughs> you know and it's like after that we just said well, let's stay out of Scott County you know it's uh, they don't really want us there and I didn't trust doing all the work and getting a search warrant and giving it to the sheriff and you know not saying it was one of his buddies but you know right we just didn't trust him in Scott county there was a lot of judges in the past and and other things that were involved with drug cases and so we just kind of avoided Scott county
1: yeah yeah do, do you feel like uh, I, I know you can't speak for everybody else but w- w- was there an have an overarching feeling that way towards scott county from outside jurisdictions do you think
6: not so much when bill farrell was there but i know that the drug task force once uh that um rick walters got in there that they were you know really didn't want to work with him and trust him at anything at all and I, i never saw any reason why not to work with him i saw the reason why not to work with Bill Farrell but we tended to work with Bill Farrell or they did but when Walters came in it seem like let's see what we can do to screw up his cases you know and that's what I always thought it's like I lost a lot of respect for the SEMO drug task force yeah
7: Started out making this much a year. Now I got a couple half million dollar horses running around in the field out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I did they really get into that. Him and Judge Bam was tight. They kept a lot of things going, you know. The voice you're hearing
1: is a man named Brian Conklin. Brian was associated with Kevin Williams and the Abbott boys and also Larry Abbott. He's also the brother of one of the women who was with Mark Abbott the night of the murder when they went to pick up Kevin Williams from the party in commerce. Brian was a colorful character, as you're going to hear in this interview. Brian Conklin doesn't hide the fact that he was a drug dealer. He moved all sorts of drugs, especially cocaine. I'd heard from one source that Brian was actually called on the night of the murder to go pick up Kevin. That's an accusation that Brian denied. Brian had all sorts of crazy stories from his time distributing cocaine and later when he manufactured methamphetamine. He described situations where people were hanging out back windows and firing guns at chasing cars. He's a construction worker and is very proud of his work ethic. He had a lot of information, important information that I'll share with you later, but what you're hearing now is kind of his thoughts on Bill Farrell.
7: I can see him being tied with Larry Abbott's mom and dad getting persuasion from them or Larry, you know, I've i got tickets for And went toward 24 and Larry said, you got a ticket? Make a phone call, give me that, I'll throw it away. sure? Yeah. But he was, they say he was tied, you know, coin operating machines in Southern Illinois, yeah. and not just anybody can do that. Right. And then uh, a couple of times I, I got a ticket and Larry, I got pulled over on the parking lot. You didn't get a motherfucker no ticket in my parking lot. Larry knew people we'd call, and they they just go ahead and throw that away. You know. me and Larry's still tight. Larry, Larry, tell Mark, hey, he catches you, going to stomp your ass, Mark. You better take care of that. Brian fuck pumped you right in the mouth. I'm not getting involved with it. Don't Larry and the motherfucker stole something from me. I'm gonna get that back from his fucking head, you know. But Larry's always been good to me. I went up his house in Cape come up here and pack some holes. He worked out. He He's out He'd get pissed off. Punch holes in the wall. I'd, have, I'd go up and take some <laughs> <everyone's wrong.
1: laughs> Riley stated that Shelton distributed methamphetamine to Todd Davis and Brian Dixon. Riley stated, That he also knows Jeremy Floyd as a distributor of methamphetamine, and that he knows Floyd distributed his methamphetamine through David Franklin, Kevin Miller, Ray Ring, Sally Lambaugh, and Nicholas Potashnik. Riley stated that he also believes Miller distributed methamphetamine in association with Mark and Matt Abbott. Riley told us that Mason provided he and Barry with pagers, which they used to facilitate the distribution of methamphetamine. Approximately 0500 hours, the door to room number 501 was opened from the outside by Sally A. Limbaugh, who was joined by five other individuals. A search by officers found Limbaugh to be in possession of methamphetamine, Susan D. Bell in possession of marijuana, and Jean E. Haynes in possession of drug paraphernalia. While other officers continued to search, I spoke with Limbaugh, who told me that she had received the methamphetamine found in her possession from Jeremy Floyd. She also stated that she was in room 501 at approximately 19.30 hours, Saturday, November 5, 1994, and observed Jeremy Floyd in the bedroom of the suite with approximately 4 ounces of methamphetamine. Limbaugh further stated that she saw a transaction between Daryl and or Jeremy Floyd and Mark Abbott, in which Mark Abbott received 3 to 4 ounces of methamphetamine. So what we have here from just a couple of these instances is Mark Abbott tied to Ray Ring and to Gene Haynes. Here's another one. This is about Matt Abbott. Abbott said that after distributing his methamphetamine received from Butch, he and Williams again advanced money to Gary for methamphetamine. Abbott believed this was during the week preceding the 1994 July 4th holiday and said that they paid Gary for one pound of methamphetamine which was to be obtained by Gary on an upcoming trip to Barstow, California. Abbott stated that about this time he went to Wapapello Lake, where he stayed four to five days at Miller's Lodge and or Twin Oaks located near the lake. Abbott said that he was aware that David Charles and or J.R. were coming from Little Rock, Arkansas to obtain the one pound of methamphetamine from Williams for $25,000. Abbott said that he believed Charles and or J.R. were to stop at Wapapella Lake on a return trip from Arkansas to meet with Abbott. Abbott said that approximately three to four days after Charles came to Missouri and received the methamphetamine from Williams, he and Williams traveled to Little Rock, Arkansas in an effort to recover the money owed for the methamphetamine. Abbott said that he and Williams stayed at the residence of Charles in Little Rock approximately three to four days, during which period Williams assaulted Charles. Abbott said that he and Williams were unsuccessful at recovering any of the money owed to them and that they gave up the effort and returned to Missouri. A couple years into my investigation of the Michelle Lawless murder, I was put in touch with a source who is familiar with the meth ring from the 1990s. This is a man who's familiar with the Abbott family, Kevin Williams, and the culture of drugs in Scott County. He agreed to talk to me in a recorded conversation on the condition of anonymity and that his voice be disguised. Um, can you tell me a little bit of what, what you heard about um, some of those dealings with the Abbott's? Yes. Um, this is tricky. <laughs> okay, uh,
8: here's the thing. Back in the day, back in the 90s, there was this group of people, and uh, they were headquartered in Long Beach, California, and uh, they were a uh, large Mexican cartel, and they sold uh, large quantities of methamphetamines, among other things, but that was uh, the chief interest that the Abbott's had with this group of people. Uh, they, uh, would go out there and I I don't know if they actually went out there very often, but I know they went out there at least once and made contact with these
1: people in California and established a relationship with them. Okay. So, uh, in the nineties, you know, the, the meth epidemic reaches, you know, that's what you were talking about earlier uh, at California. Um, Were those were those same things happening then um, with you know kind of looking the other other way in in certain situations?
8: I don't have any direct knowledge of that, but it was you know mainly a lot of the same players and a lot of the same people were still in power. So if you know, like I said, I think uh, a lot of times maybe it wouldn't be so much as you know like a, a case would be dismissed, but. Maybe somebody would make a phone call and say, "Hey, look, uh, these people are looking at you. You might want to, you know, shut things down for a while." Or, you know, there were there were things that were going on that were maybe hidden in the shadows that were never brought to light, and you know, maybe investigations that were never started, you know, that sort of thing. Like I said, I don't I don't have any smoking gun evidence or you know what I can say. This guy, through this you know, sort this investigation or this guy didn't indict this person. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I know anything that's like directly a smoking gun, but it was just well known. It was just, you know, it was just the way things were done and there, were, there was a lot of money and a lot of powerful people that were uh, either directly or indirectly involved in letting things kind of run the way they had always run, which was, you know, secretive and underhanded. Now, you know, earlier when we were talking about, you know, that there was a lot of corruption and widespread corruption in Scott County that that it seemed that that Kevin Williams and Bill Farrell had a relationship that that, you know, Kevin was kinda given free reign down there to do his distribution and I don't know, you know, like I said, I have no direct knowledge of it. It was I heard it hearsay from a friend, but it was a friend that was also involved in business dealings with them. And I think Kevin had bragged to him about having you know, a, a relationship that was where, where he could pretty much act with impunity down there. And if anything happened, if there was any investigation swung his way, that he would learn about them before they progressed. Like, you know, really the, the, the locals were kind of in, in, in their pockets, but the only thing they really feared would have been federal intervention and federal investigations. But even those were kind of held in check because the feds really couldn't do anything without some sort of local involvement. So anytime there would be any whisperings of an investigation or, you know, something indictments, whatever that might be, then the word would go to the, to the locals, to the County Sheriff or whatever, to the and police or whatever. And the word would quickly be leaked to, you know, the the people that were in the ring down there, which, you know, Kevin Williams was definitely involved in. They were getting fairly large amounts from the West coast. Um, I had, I had a friend that once said he saw a five-gallon bucket that was, you know, probably had at least five or more pounds of uh, California mass in it, and that was, you know, <laughs> if you're storing it in five-gallon buckets, you probably have access to pretty large amounts of it. Would yeah. be my my guess on that, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: So we're kind of um, you know kind of getting to the to the nitty gritty of things. Um, Are you aware of um, any relationship between uh, Larry Abbott and Bill Farrell?
8: I don't know of any direct relationship as far as any quid pro quo type of relationships. But I had heard that because of the Lawler investigation that there may have been you know, some sort of uh, exchange or some sort of, you know, quid pro quo. But like I said, I have no direct knowledge of it. I've only heard rumors and you know secondhand stories. But it seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there, at the right price. And you know, when your when your sons, our sons, may have you know been looking at an indictment on a murder case that. That would be something that could have possibly been something that you know would have made an amount of money, change hands. But like I said, I have no direct knowledge of it. But it wasn't; it definitely was not out of the realm of possibility.
1: Would you have ever heard anything specifically about about Josh Keizer or um, how that trial went, how they got that conviction? Did you have you have you heard anything about?
8: Yeah, I had actually heard that, uh, well, you know, I mean, if there was an arrangement made to, you know, to cover up or not investigate or however you want to put it, what happened there, then there was a lot of public pressure that somebody had to go. Somebody had to go down for it, and it seemed like Josh Kieser was just a, you know, a, a readily available fall guy, really, I mean. Maybe the kid was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I say kid, I mean, he's a, he's a man now. And he's, you know, suffered a long consequences for what happened to him. And it's become, you know, a public record that he was falsely convicted. And, you know, it was a terrible travesty of justice what they did to that young man. I think anybody that's aware of any part of the case would agree with that. Um, I had heard that, you know, they, they took the, some of the jailhouse bitches down there and said, hey, listen we'll reduce your charges or we'll, you know, you can make bond or, you know, do something along those lines of helping you on your legal problems if you uh, say that you heard this kid confess to this crime and basically they railroaded him. And-
1: can, you, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about what, what you're comfortable telling us as far as how you would have access to some of this information?
8: Well, um, I was involved in the the criminal underworld and I was involved in the methamphetamine trade and uh, I had friends that were involved in it at upper levels. I'll just put it that way. And uh, we would talk shop, you know, and sometimes things would be talked about, you know, of uh, other rings or other people that were involved and, and I would hear things from uh, my friends. And my friends were well-connected. I, myself, went to federal prison for distribution of methamphetamine. Um, I've changed my life since then, but that's neither here nor there. As far as my involvement at that time, I was intimately involved at what you might call upper levels or at least mid-levels. And I conversed with uh, a lot of people that were involved in you know, we talked and we shared information and almost all the information that I heard was from people that were either directly or indirectly involved with everything we've been talking about. I think it was, it was not, I don't think it was really that, I don't know, if it was a hierarchy, if it was tightly organized, I think it was just a group that shared interests and, you know, uh, I'm not sure who the who the actual, who, if you would call a kingpin or a ringleader or whatever, I'm not sure who that would have actually been. Actually, if anybody was in that position, it's probably a person who's never really been charged and faced the music for what was going on then because, like I said, he was operating at a, a different level. It may be what you might call a puppet master or whatever you might want to call it and uh, never really uh, was indicted for any of this and never as far at least to my knowledge, never got in trouble because um, people didn't generally mess with him. You know, people didn't generally want to put him out there because, you know, that, that could have uh, led to uh, real, real, real problems because he was very well protected.
1: On Friday, December 2, 1994, and December 21, 1994, Task Force Officer J.R. Weber and I interviewed Richard Ray Ring at his residence in Sykeston, Missouri. Ring said that about this time, during midsummer 1994, he was aware that the Abbott brothers and Kevin Williams had fronted one pound of methamphetamine to an individual in Arkansas who were unknown to Ring, and that the methamphetamine was fronted for $25,000. Rings stated that the individuals in Arkansas did not pay the Abbott's and Williams for the methamphetamine, and that the Abbott's and Williams traveled to Arkansas in an effort to recover the money owed for the methamphetamine. Rings stated that Floyd's transactions with the Abbott's took place primarily at the Abbott's shop building on St. Mary Street in Scott City, Missouri, and at a yellow house where one or both of the Abbott brothers resided in Scott City, Missouri. Rings stated that Floyd obtained an unknown quantity of methamphetamine from Jim at this time and that Ring was told by Floyd that 10 pounds of methamphetamine were at another location at the hotel. Ring stated that Jim had a gray 9mm handgun of unknown make on a table in the room and that he was furnishing user amounts of methamphetamine to everyone present. Ring stated along with himself, Floyd, Hampton, and Jim, those present included Floyd's girlfriend, Angie Welter, Michelle Beck, Danielle Carter, Jamie Floyd, and Chantel Kreider, David Franklin, and Hampton's wife. So obviously, Ray Ring was all up in the Abbott's business. Chantel Kreider and her then-husband, David Franklin, were all tied up in this. Furthermore, Ring stated that, Floyd has distributed methamphetamine to David Franklin and Nicholas Potashnik since about June of 1994, and that he has watched Potashnik distribute quarter gram quantities of methamphetamine to high school students in Sykeston. This was happening in the summer of 1994, the same summer that Chantel Kreider testified against Josh Kieser. Meth was pouring into Missouri. At one point, the Show Me State was dubbed by a national news organization as the meth capital of the United States, and the reporter used the dateline Benton, Missouri, to open the story about the meth epidemic. Two major Mexican operations were going down because of Kevin Williams. It was Williams who was caught, and Williams who began snitching right away. The names he brought to law enforcement included Rene Quintero, Randy Cordova, and Jose Guerra, among others. Williams began working for the federal government to bring down the ring. He did secret recorded phone calls. And once Williams started snitching, everyone else did too. The meth files I have name a hundred or more small dealers and users. Scott County has a population of 40,000. Some of these users and dealers would be labeled meth whores. Others were doctors and lawyers. Some of them were mean and violent. One of them was and is a manager at Lambert's. It took the feds two years to get the guys they wanted. During that time, Kevin Williams and the Abbots were free for the time being as long as they continued to cooperate with the drug agents. During that time, they made hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars. Two sources told me independently that Williams had over $100,000 in cash in his possession at one time or another. One time, he had his cash spread out all over his bed. The other time, he needed help wiring money out of state. As the DEA was circling in on the major operation, Lambert's cafe owner, Norman Lambert, was facing a sexual harassment lawsuit. It would be the second such suit he was facing. The victim claimed Lambert subjected the plaintiff to unwanted sexual advances, including, quote, "...requests and demands for dates and sexual favors," kissed and placed his arms around the plaintiff and touched her breasts and buttocks in a sexual nature which was not invited and not consented, unquote. When she declined his advances, he, quote, subjected her work to intense scrutiny and constant unwarranted criticism, refused her desirable work assignments, and refused her request to transfer away from defendant Norman Lambert applied more rigorous standards in the evaluation of her work than were applied to the work of other employees, unquote. Eventually, she was fired on July 2 of 1994. It just so happened that the plaintiff hired a name familiar to this podcast. She hired David Rosner. The sexual harassment case is fairly common knowledge in Scott County, for those who really know the darker side. But Rosner knew things well beyond inappropriate touching of women and creating a hostile workplace. As part of taking on the case, Rosner was examining Lambert's financial position, his assets, and his income.
2: There was a a bullshit company down there called Morley Paving and Excavating. It was not registered with the Secretary of State. It did not have a business license in Scott County. And it was all bound up with Norm Lambert, Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people who were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called Morley Paving and Excavating. Okay. Do you know anything about this? No, you have documents? Most of that would have been in my Lambert file, because I, I discovered it in my Lambert.
1: You got a Lambert file?
2: Oh, God. I, I'm under protective. I can't talk much about it. You know, Lambert didn't
1: commit suicide.
2: Well, I never really knew what was going on, but I'm the guy that was suing him over the sexual harassment. And Morley Paving and Excavating and Kevin Williams came up in the context of the. Uh, Darlene Almadani versus Norman Lambert and Lambert's Cafe. And there was this bullshit company, and I could never, you know, I just kept hitting walls. The bill was thick as thieves with the Lambert's. Norm threatened me if I didn't back off of his case that I'd end up, quote, face down in a cornfield. And that was in Jim Robinson's office. Jim was on the Board of Governors for the Missouri Bar. When I took Norm's deposition, I told him, well, you need to go back in there and sit your ass down. I'm not done answering you questions. We were asking questions about why his airport was flying down to Arizona and South Texas and picking up shit. The Lambert airplane was getting used. What was my belief, it was making a lot of strange trips. Then nobody could ever really account for them, and ultimately that case got settled, so I stopped pursuing it. Um, And then I told them all along down there that Ben Lambert was a bad apple, and he was doing some bad dope dealing and shit with women, and I just got shut down at every turn. You're just causing trouble. Your mercenary litigation tactics killed Norm Lambert. I had Jim Robinson filing on the Board of Governors, so, 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 disparaging my law license up there with the OCDC and and all this shit. And lo and behold, 20 years later, Ben Lambert gets busted for sex trafficking meth horse yeah. down in Foley, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I knew this all along, and they painted me out to be a stark, raving lunatic. From day one on Josh Teaser, and then it carried on into the Norm Lambert case, and eventually they sold me a $50 bag of pot and a sting operation. And the rest is history. I got invited to take a little time off from the bar. Wow. And lost everything and had to start over. But,
1: you this, know. This is amazing. Um, okay, so, so the lawsuit, um, was that
2: a sexual harassment case? Did it go beyond that at all? Beyond sexual harassment? Just blow jobs in the workplace, basically, were the allegations, and it was settled. I can't tell you what it was settled for. Or I have to be probably, there was a gag order after that settlement, so I'm not really sure how far I can go on it without, and I don't have that file anymore. You know, I kept it 10 years, it was settled, and I think it got, I think I burned it out in a trash barrel right here in the backyard with all the other 20-year-old files I
1: didn't have to cheat. Yeah, because my investigation of the lawless case has taken me to Norm Lambert.
2: Yeah, they were fucking interconnected. Kevin Williams was running dope. Kevin and Mark were running dope for Benji Lambert. And Norm Lambert was Bill Farrell's real tight connection. They had businesses right next to each other. So there's your connection.
1: Rosner was pushing hard on that sexual harassment case. It was moving more slowly than he would have liked. Meanwhile, the federal court was putting away the last conspirators of the speed bump methamphetamine conspiracy. On May 29th of 1996, the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Missouri received a filing by Lambert's attorneys disputing the arguments made by Rosner and his client. Twelve days later, on the evening of June 10th, 1996, Norman Lambert was found dead in his Jeep. His body lay over the console and into the passenger seat. A gun had fallen near his hand onto the floorboard. The
4: beloved restaurant owner was dead, killed by a single bullet to the head. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to the Lawless Files.
0: Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again please go to TheLawlessFiles.com and
6: subscribe.
1: Next time on The Lawless Files. Th- did he say anything about how, how they got her to stop? Or? Uh,
6: they were saying they were behind her flashing their lights and blowing the horn trying to get her to stop.
1: Okay. So uh, so then the car stops. Then what What did Mark say happened?
6: Uh, Mark said they stopped on the Benton exit, <clears throat> that Kevin got out. He stayed in the car. He said that uh, Kevin went up to the car. He heard him arguing some, talking some. Arguing some, and then he heard some gunshots.
1: Okay. Um, did, did Mark say where they had been coming from, or did he say uh, what happened after that?
6: He said they had driven, following her from the Sykeston area up to the Benton exit. Okay. They would have been going northbound on 55.
1: Okay. But he didn't say, you know, if they were at a party or, you know, where they were at. Um, no, he did that. not say that. Okay. Okay. So, um... Did did Mark give any detail about what happened right after that? Like wh- where they went or anything of that nature? Uh,
6: Mark said as soon as the shooting happened, uh, he saw Kevin Williams ran off toward the east to the toward the Farrell mobile homes uh, trailer lot. Uh, he went up and uh, checked on Michelle. Uh, so at that time he went and tried to uh, he went to the sheriff's office to get help. Okay.